If you have a Bible, uh, I hope you do. Would you turn with me to the 37th chapter of Ezekiel? Ezekiel chapter 37. To begin with, just one phrase from this, uh, chap- this wonderful chapter. We'll look at the details in a moment. But God says to Ezekiel in verse 4, prophesy over these bones. We'll ask the Lord to bless us as we consider God's word this morning to us. And as we just sang to ask the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with uh, devotion to him and love for his word. Let's pray to that end. Father, this is uh, your word. Uh, It's not the word of Ezekiel, the man, or uh, of Paul, the apostle, but it is God's word, and therefore it is true, and it speaks to our hearts in uh, reference to doctrine or to instruction in righteousness or to prepare our hearts to serve you in the church and in our families, in our workplaces, We pray that you would so uh, touch our hearts this morning by this living word. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I heard uh, this week that there is uh, a new Jurassic Park movie coming out soon. Uh, This is not a recommendation. Certainly not an endorsement, but uh, I got curious about it, so I went online to see the trailer. And uh, frankly, it was kind of dumb. Sort of a cross between Jars and uh, a Jason Bourne uh, thriller uh, with uh, people jumping uh, across roofs. with lizards jumping across after them. It's not for me. I was intrigued, however, by a couple of statements from the trailer showing uh, me once again that the unbelieving world has to borrow from the Christian world in in order even to produce a movie. One character says... Having been chased by a vicious Kentosaurus, that's a lizard from Kent, he says, we not only lack dominion over nature, we are subservient to it. And I thought, I wonder where he got those categories. Dominion over the creation, subservient to it. Another quote struck me because it perfectly fit the the text of my sermon, I didn't plan that, but just having read it or seen it, uh, I noticed it. Uh, A man says very profoundly, creation is an act of sheer will. That idea will be proven absolutely false in the next 25 minutes or so. Here in Ezekiel... The prophet, 
of God is taken into a valley by the Spirit of God where he finds a large pile of bones distributed across this valley. We will not sing the song, even though some of you are already humming it uh, in your minds. Uh, What did Ezekiel see? Verse 1 says that a valley full of bones, and the text seems to make it clear that the bones were very dry and the bones were very many. In contrast, it becomes obvious that they are in the context, it becomes obvious that these are the bones of men. Lots and lots of very dead men. And Ezekiel is asked, son of man, can the bones live? In other words, hey, Zeke, do you have a plan? Uh, Do you have a philosophy would you come together, uh, come to me with some sort of sociological uh, tool here or theory here that could uh, make these bones, uh, perhaps, Ezekiel, a political scheme? Make the bones great again, he would say. Maybe you could team up with Elon and come up with enough money to bring the bones to life. That's my paraphrase. But the prophet says, looking at these dry bones, Lord, I don't. I, I, I can't. I'm sure that if these bones are going to live, that, Lord, you have another plan. You have another plan. Oh, and so here it comes then. Lord, you know. The Lord says, Ezekiel, prophesy upon these bones. Proclaim to the many bones the word of the Lord, the word of God. Tell them his purpose. Tell them his ways. And God said, or Ezekiel said, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Twice he declares to the bones the purpose of God, You will live. Just as at the very beginning, when God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and Adam became a living being. As the psalmist and Job declare, you clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And so it is that these bones will live. And even as he prophesied, Ezekiel heard something. He heard a sound. It was the sound of rattling. Rattling bones, if you will. And then he saw the sight of it. 
the bones coming together, all of them from this jumbled mass, each knuckle to knuckle and elbow to forearm to shoulder to hip to back to legs to toes. And suddenly upon those connected bones formed tendons and then muscles and then skin. What a wonderful thing was happening right in front of Ezekiel. But you know what? Those bones all hooked together, all the sinew, all the skin, still lifeless, lifeless. Just a form of men, not really men, because they had no life. And so the Lord says, speak again, Ezekiel. This time prophesy to the breath and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And the breath, the breath came into them. And they stood in that valley, a mighty host, a mighty army. The the emphasis of the Hebrew there is their number, their resources, their energy, their power was easily seen easily perceived by anyone who saw it. Now, the first thing we need to do is look at this text from the point of view of the people who received it the first time. That is, the people of God in Israel in Ezekiel's day. They were a people, actually not in Israel, but in captivity. They were in Babylon. They were without any security. They were without much hope. Their faith had been shattered by 70 years of captivity. And Ezekiel had come to them with great words of promise in the previous chapter. Let me just read some sections from chapter 36. Verse 8, But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, and they will soon come home. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The city shall be inhabited, and the waste places rebuilt. Verse 22, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you come, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, and I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And here's the covenant. And I will be your God and you will be my people. 
What hope did Israel have as Ezekiel proclaimed those words? It seems not very much at all. They were like a valley of dry bones. But now, chapter 37, the prophet of God comes and declares in this vision that their expectations might be not for themselves alone. They would get benefit from this. But that the power and the force of God fundamentally and primarily might be seen in the world. And so in chapter 37 and verse 14, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will take place, I will I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will declare it, declares the Lord. What a wonderful text. I wonder what it's about. You can probably guess. From the scripture, even in the sermons that you have been hearing from your pastor, In the Gospel of Mark, you've noticed there in the early chapters how much sin had affected the people and the impact that sin has on the human race and therefore the effect that sin has on us as individuals by nature, by a a fallen nature. We're in trouble. We are in deep trouble because although we might hear it, although we might even to some extent understand it with natural ears, with a natural mind, that call of God in the gospel to salvation, we might hear about propitiation, about justification, about the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. We might hear it, but we still got a problem. Even though these great promises, these precious promises, are before all men, every man, woman, and child in the world, there, is, there it is, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And yet by nature... Morally and spiritually, we're unable to understand it. We're unable to respond to it. By nature, we do not seek God and are not even able to make any response at all to the marvelous news that God delivers to us. We cannot please God. To use the illustration of Ezekiel, we're dead. Nothing but dry bones. And the question is still the same. Can these bones live? Was it not the same thing that I just read a few minutes ago from Ephesians chapter 2? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. There's a great disconnect, a great incongruity. It's it's like 
putting a square peg in a round hole. Here's the promise and, and here's the reality and it just doesn't fit. It won't go in there no matter how much I twist it. Men and God are at odds. They're sinners and they do not know how they can come to God because they're dead in their sin. What possible resolution is there? Well, the Bible declares that there is a resolution to this. We read it again in Ephesians 2. It is by what? Remember I told you two years ago, it's okay to talk in church? It is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace that God resolves this problem. God himself reaches down into the lowest depths of the needs of men and women and by his own work meets that need in the ones that he has chosen to work by grace. And the beginning of that grace The beginning of that grace is what we call regeneration. It's what Jesus called being born again, being born from above. It's the expression of the power of God recreating within that dead sinner the capacity he so desperately needs in order to do even the things that God requires of him, to repent of sin and to exercise faith in Jesus Christ. And perhaps no other passage in the scripture is more to the point of the matter of regeneration than the very familiar one. And if you want to, you can turn with me to that passage. John 3, where Jesus speaks to this Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And in John 3 and verse 1, John writes, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these things unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now you can imagine the number of books that have been filled and written uh, giving exposition of these few verses, and I don't intend to do that. There are so many wonderful truths here. Let me just try to boil it down to just a few things. Jesus indicates that, first of all, two things are necessary 
Two things are necessary to be accomplished so that we might be regenerated. In verse 5, he says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I'm not going to bog you down with all of the different theories and suggestions about what it means to be born of water and of the Spirit. I'll instead trust John Murray, who goes back to the reference in Ezekiel in chapter 36, where Ezekiel says of the Lord, or from the Lord, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Water is used in the Old Testament and in Scripture as a symbol for cleansing, for purification. One of the things that needs to take place in the heart and in the life of an individual to be regenerated is that the problems, the problem, if you will, singular, of my sinful nature needs to be washed away and cleansed. I need to be washed. My heart is hard. My mind is mush. My will is stubborn. My emotions are inclined always to the things of this world. And that's the problem. I'm unable to see clearly because my eyes are foggy to think clearly or to act correctly. And in regeneration, there is the illumination or the elimination, I should say, of those problems. Those limitations are removed. That's the first thing. But that's not enough. That's not enough. Because I'm still left without positive abilities. And so Jesus says, not only do you have to be cleansed from all the mush of your life, but you need the spirit as well, the breath. So then secondly, the spirit comes, the breath comes. And new, fresh life is brought into my heart and to my soul so that I can perceive my sin And all the wretchedness of it, I can turn from that sin. I can look at the gospel of Jesus Christ that's held before me as the wonderful provision for my need of salvation. And he acts upon my will so that I am able, by his gift of faith, to embrace Jesus Christ as he's offered to me. John Murray writes, regeneration must negate the past and reconstitute for the future. Negate the past, reconstitute for the future. Jesus also declares this in John 3, 8, that the regenerate ones are born of the Spirit. And when he says this, he's teaching that All of this activity, all of this happens because of God's work. It's God who does it. Earlier in John, in the introduction to his gospel, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of men, but they were born of God. 
Simple fact. We're dependent upon God for new birth. Now I did a little research. Who are the Thompsons? Not here. Always happens. The youngest person in the congregation at Emmanuel is Callum Thompson. He was born when? January? Several months ago. What did he have to do with it? Oh, yeah. He was begotten in the biblical term by his father, Michael. He was born of his mother, Chessa. Chessa? Yeah, whatever. Sorry. What did Callum have to do with it? Nothing. Nothing. He didn't born himself. He didn't get himself born. He was born. In the second birth, in the new birth, it's exactly the same. It's probably the reason why Jesus used that term to Nicodemus. You must be born again. And he gives the illustration here. I saw it vividly just this past week. Uh, somebody told us that there was an extremely low tide at Puget Sound. So Pam and I went down. It was a freezing cold wind, uh, but we went down to the sound and there was a man flying a kite. And while we were sitting there on the bench, the kite was flying. And I said to Pam, uh, where does the wind come from? And how, do, how, does, how does it come from one direction and not the other? And she quoted John to me, and then I understood, of course. But then I looked at the kite, and there was the kite, perfectly steady in one space place in the in the sky, right? Now it was bobbing back and forth and diving and going all over the place, and you couldn't tell where it was going, how it was going to do. One time it crashed to the ground, which ruins the illustration. But nevertheless, uh, there was the wind blowing. From where it was coming from, I didn't know, but there it was. And that's the illustration that Jesus gives. So it is with the Spirit of, the Spirit of God. It blows where it wills. God's will, God's decision, God's action, all perfectly determined by His sovereignty in His providence from all eternity. Now, what does that all mean to us? Well, you and I, first of all, are passive in our regeneration. Now, many people bristle at that, especially in the modern age. We don't like that idea of being passive in these kinds of things. Because we're Americans, after all, and we are the can-do kind of people. At least we used to be. It goes against our ego. What did that movie say? Creation is an act of sheer will. My choice, my will, my autonomous determination. Such a notion goes up against what many, many people believe and, to some extent, what people hear in some churches. But regeneration... Being born again by God is never referred to in the imperative mood. Go and be born again. It never says that. 
It does say you must be born again. But the Bible never tells you to go and somehow do it. Can you write a book entitled How to Be Born Again? The answer is no. But thanks be to God, he who calls us to it is himself the very agent of it by his marvelous Holy Spirit in his sovereign grace. And by that act of grace, he turns our hostility into love, our disobedience into willing obedience, our distrust into saving, living faith. And then there's another thing. Regeneration is never the end of it. It's always the beginning of something else, something new. We're not born again because of or account of the fact that we believe in Christ. We are not regenerate after we repent of our sins. Why? The simple fact is, you go back to the beginning, we're dead in sin and we're incapable of either one of those things. It is because of and following our being born again, following our regeneration by the Spirit, that we can become conscious of sin and repent. It is because of and following our regeneration that we understand the good news about Jesus and believe And then following that, the Apostle John, the same one who wrote chapter 3, goes on to tell us that it's by the fact of our regeneration that all of the spiritual life and all of the spiritual graces proceed in our lives. There's a direct connection between regeneration and the other evidences of grace. 1 John Just four verses. Chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Chapter 3, in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Chapter 4, in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Every person who has been born again regenerated by God's Spirit, has been delivered from the bondage and the power of sin and sinning. He is an overcomer and will not be subject to all the enticements of the world. She is the one who exercises self-control, for she is no longer a slave to sin. In other words, it's the regenerate person who enters into the kingdom of God. And Paul told the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. 
new things have come. And brothers and sisters, there's profound implications to all of this in our lives. Here's the question that you might be asked at some point in time. Are you one of those born-again Christians? Now, if your answer to that is to tie yourself to some social movement or some political movement, the answer may be no, I'm not one of those. But if you're talking about your spiritual condition and your standing before God, the answer must be, there are no other kinds of Christians than born-again Christians. And yes, I am. One of them, I must be if I am a believer. For anyone who is not born of God is not and cannot be one who receives the benefits, the love of God, the forgiving grace of God, the blessings of being comforted by God, being strengthened by God. To say nothing of life eternal with God. Now there's another way to look at it. And I really think in my years of ministry that this has come home to me even in good old Orthodox Presbyterian churches. It's not my place to judge people. It's not my place to judge any of your hearts. But it's a reality. And it's of a necessity that the spiritual effects of the new birth are evident. What of the person? What of the person who doesn't display it? The fruit of grace in the life. He's rebellion. He's in rebellion. He's living a sinful life. He stays in the world consistently acting like the world is his primary environment. Like the character, like the world describes his character. She is the one who made profession of faith perhaps a long time ago. Made a decision somewhere along in life. She may have joined the church. She may have been baptized. She may have gotten all the Sunday school pins. You don't use the Sunday school pins anymore, but they were there back in the day. But the fact is that this person doesn't seem, it's not evident that they're making consistent progress to bear the fruits of regeneration. Reading the Bible, cherishing the law of God, not praying, not being faithful among God's people. Is that person born again? Is that person regenerated? If you're that way this morning, I don't know all of you. Are you born again? Are you seeing that fruit in your life? That's one of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves. And trusting that you have an affirmative answer. But so many times, that question runs through our minds when we talk about our loved ones, our spouses, our parents, our children, our grandchildren, 
our best friends from days gone by, are they born again? And do they show the, the, the evidence of that, the fruit of the new creation? To know the answer will often make an extreme difference in the way we speak to that person, in the, we, in the way we pray about that person and for that person, and in the way we alter our assumptions about the care that we have for the souls of those people. For the believer, for those truly born again, this this marvelous truth of the sovereign grace of God is wonderful to our hearts and to our minds. The believer knows that he was dead in sin. He knows the initiative of his salvation did not come from him, but it came from God. She knows that she brings nothing to the table for her justification, but relies totally on the righteousness of Christ, purchased on the cross and by his resurrection. Each one believer knows that they have the joyful privileges of being a part of the very family of God. Jesus uses that image of born purposefully. We are children of God. Children together by that common birth. And together then with all the saints, each born-again believer knows that when Jesus comes, And he is coming. When he comes, we will be changed. And we will be, by the grace of God, with the Lord together, regenerated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It speaks so clearly to our hearts and to our minds. Those of us who know the new birth here in this room this morning, cherish that very great privilege, being known by you, being saved by the work of Jesus who died for us, not just in general, but died for my sins, that I might be right with you. Lord, we cherish that, but we also know that even in a congregation such as this, There may be those who are assuming, based on some decision that they think they made long ago, and need yet to be born again, we pray that your spirit would work in their hearts today and cause them to know Christ, him crucified, him risen again, him ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and coming again. We look forward to that day, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.